What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Uh, we see a lot of anti-Christianity uh, being displayed in the rejection of nativity scenes, uh, the refusal to use uh, the term Merry Christmas in commercial transactions, and general rejection of Christianity in, uh, in our society. Uh, it's good that we uh, note uh, this, what if Jesus had never been born? Just to give you a little bit of a preview of where we're going, there are two Sundays in Advent left. We're going to be returning to the book of Malachi to look at um, where we left off, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, as Malachi talks about sending a messenger to prepare the way for the Lord. And then the last uh, section of Malachi as it talks about... Um, uh, Elijah coming. So we're going to look at those two prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah for the remainder of Advent and then finish the book of Malachi by looking at the remainder of chapter 3 on New Year's Eve. Then the first Sunday in January I have to be in Chicago uh, to preach in a uh, sister church there, United Reformed Church, Linwood United Reformed Church and also perform a wedding so I'll be gone the first Sunday in January. The second Sunday in January, we're going to have a guest preacher, uh, Alric Headley, Reverend Alric Headley from the Zion United Reformed Church in Ripon, California, is going to be in town and fill our pulpit for us. So the third Sunday in January, we'll begin a new series, and that will be on the book of Proverbs. All right. So we're going to conclude Malachi in the Advent season, and then in the new year, begin the book of Proverbs, so you have some idea of where we're going. Let's uh, ask for the Lord's blessings before we read His Word. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that at this time of year, we might remember uh, all uh, that You have done for us in sending Your only begotten Son to be a Savior and a substitute for our sins. That we might uh, read from Your own Word and hear explained and applied uh, why He came and the significance of that. We ask that this morning as we consider the alternative, had He not come, uh, that You would grant us Your blessing and fill us with a greater appreciation for Your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Hear us, we ask, in His name. Amen. Alright, Matthew chapter 5, we'll read verses 13, 16, then I want to turn over to John chapter 15, John chapter 15, and uh, read a few verses from there. This is uh, Jesus Himself speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father 
in heaven. And then if you turn to John chapter 15, verses 22 to 24, Jesus again speaking says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, yet they have hated both me and my father. Two points to this morning's sermon. First of all, the results of Jesus coming. The results of Jesus coming and incarnation. And secondly, our responses to Jesus coming. So the results of Jesus coming and responses to Jesus coming. One of my favorite Christmas shows growing up, and I trust it might be yours as well, was It's a Wonderful Life. If you've never seen it, and I was shocked last year to find that there were some in our midst that had never seen it. If you've never seen it, you really should see it. It's on usually about 50 times uh, uh, the week of Christmas. You can turn to just about any channel at any time and find it. So uh, very easy, but it's a wonderful life. Now, uh, in it, if uh, you recall or let me tell you, in it, Jimmy Stewart gets a chance to see what life, what would, uh, what life would be like had he never been born. Um, it's a long story. I don't want to get into the movie so much except to say that that's essentially the plot line of the film. Uh, what w- life would be like had he never been born. Uh, the main point, you see, is that each person's life has an impact on everyone else's life. And when, if that person, if one person had never been born, then all those impacts would never have been made. And everybody's life that that one person touched in the course of their existence uh, would be dramatically uh, changed. Uh, there would be gaping holes left by their absence. Well, if Jesus had never been born, the hole would be a canyon the size of a continent. The hole would be a canyon the size of a continent. It needs to be said, and it needs to be heard often, that the coming of Jesus Christ transformed both individual lives in that He saved people from their sins, not the least of which are those of us here this morning. So He transformed individual lives, but He transformed the life of the entire world. He transformed the life of the entire world. It's very common to hear, and uh, I heard it again this morning, that the tragedy of Christmas time is commercialization. Um, And many people pick up on that, and even many Christians uh, pick up on the idea that the tragedy of Christmas is commercialization. I'd like to submit to you a different sentiment, and that is that the tragedy of uh, Christmas is not commercialization, it's trivialization. It's the trivialization of Christmas. It's the jingle bells, the Santa Claus rock, the removal of any reference to Jesus Christ, who He was or what He did in the Christmas season, so as to trivialize Christmas that is the real tragedy. And that's why I want you to consider with me this morning the results of Jesus coming. 
the results of Jesus' coming. And I have um, 11 of them, at least. Um, I should tell you that uh, this uh, was prompted by a book written by D. James Kennedy, uh, entitled, the title of the sermon, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, uh, which I read some years ago, and was further uh, prompted by an academic uh, treatment of the same uh, subject by Alvin Schmidt, who's a Christian, uh, he's actually a Lutheran preacher and a professor of sociology in Illinois, who wrote a book under the influence, How Christianity Transformed Civilization. And uh, it's much more thoroughgoing treatment than D. James Kennedy uh, did in his book. But let's consider then uh, the results of Jesus' uh, coming. First of all, he uh, transformed um, lives. He transformed lives. This is what we ordinarily focus on in our worship. It's ordinarily what we focus on at Christmas time as well. That Jesus, by his own statement, said he came to save people from their sins. He came to rescue people from death and hell and Satan. If there had been no death of Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, and if He had not ascended to the right hand of His Father on high, there to reign presently, currently, um, then people would still be in their sins. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, if you would. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Paul begins by saying, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me. And uh, skip down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. This is the first result of Jesus' coming, is that He saved us from our sins. He gave us new birth into a living hope, new life, raised into new creations, recreated in the image of God. And then read verse 18. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Somebody asked a Catholic um, 
monk, his name escapes me at the moment once, what if he died only to find out that Christianity was not true? And he said, that doesn't bother me, because I know that I would have lived a virtuous life. Pshaw! Hogwash! That's what Paul says. Hogwash! He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. We're a pitiful group of people. We're to be pitied more than all men. If this is just a pipe dream, if it's just a crutch we lean on, if it's just some pie-in-the-sky dream or hope that may turn out to not be true, we're a bunch of pitiful people. And worse than that, we're still in our sins. Paul says, but Christ has been raised from the dead. And he goes on. So the first result of Jesus' coming is that He transformed lives. He saves us from our sins. And this is no small thing, and it has been no small message. David Barrett and Todd Johnson, um, Operation Prayer, I think it's called, uh, uh, for Christians around the world, uh, statistically estimate that there are 1.8 billion professing believers in Christ found in most of the nations on earth. From a handful of small disciples in a remote corner of the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. This message, you see, transformed lives in almost every nation on the face of the earth. The message of salvation. And I simply, as a minister of the Gospel talking about the results of Jesus coming, would say, is that true of you here today? Can you really celebrate the reason for the season? Can you really sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, if He's not been the Savior of your sins? If He's not the one who's given you new life? If He's not one who's made you a new creation? If He's not the one in whom you have put your trust and hung your hopes for eternity on Him? Apart from that, it's all just a charade. Apart from that, it's all just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Apart from that, there's really no reason for living, and certainly no hope in dying. So the first result of Jesus coming is that He brought individual salvation, and surely we can sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. But secondly... The result of Jesus' coming was He improved the value of human life. He improved the value of human life. Because Christianity teaches that humans are made in the image of God. Humans are made in the image of God. Without Christianity, life is cheap. Without Christianity, children are sacrificed. You read this in the pages of the Bible itself, don't we? When we read that the nations surrounding Israel in the Old Testament offered to Molech child sacrifices, and lo and behold, even the Israelites joined in this. But we have this in our own generation as well, don't we? With the abortion holocaust that goes on, and the millions of children that have been slaughtered. Why is that? Because nobody values human life. Life is cheap. Why is it that murders are perpetually on the rise in the crime uh, statistics? Because without Christianity, as it wanes as an influence in our society, life is cheap. So what? You blow somebody's head off. So what? If you smack them and they die. So what? 
It doesn't mean anything. I, uh, this new movie that came out by Mel Gibson, Apocalypto, about Mayan civilization. You know, it's very interesting. We always assume that things are everywhere the way they are here. And that things have always been the way that they are today. And that's just not the case. And some things like this movie remind us of what unchristian civilizations, civilizations that had never been influenced by Christianity, Christ, the Bible, and the power of the Holy Spirit, are like. Apocalypto, whether you've seen it or not, uh, talks about Mayan civilizations where they would take people, put them on an altar, and cut their hearts out while they were alive and then chop their heads off and throw the body down the stairs of the temple and people would eat it. Now, I don't mean to gross you out, but I'm just saying there's no value to human life apart from Christ and apart from Christianity. Women are devalued and degraded apart from Christianity. I lived in Saudi Arabia for three years, lived in the Middle East, Women are not educated. Women are not allowed to drive. Women uh, are not allowed out of their houses unless they're completely uh, covered from head to toe. Uh, women are not allowed to be in the same room with men in mixed company. They have to be in a segregated room. And this is because they are treated like chattel. They are treated like animals. They are treated like they are nothing. Christianity, when it came, elevated the status of women. You hear today from feminists all over, they talk about Christianity as somehow uh, the influence or the force that degraded women. No, Christianity elevated the status of women. And you can see it just by going to non-Christian societies and see the, the value of life and the value of women in those societies. Same thing with slavery. Slavery was condoned and promoted and is still condoned and promoted in places in the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere, uh, Asia. Um, uh, uh, where Christianity has not been an influence. But Christianity was the influence that led to the abolition of slavery. First, uh, in Great Britain, uh, the man who wrote the hymn, uh, which is known to all of us, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, John Newton, was responsible for abolishing, along with William Wilberforce, abolishing the slave trade in Great Britain. And it was largely Christianity which led to the abolition of slavery as we knew it in our own country as well. You see, the morality of a society can easily judge, can be easily judged by its view of human life. The morality of a society can be easily judged by its view of human life. And Christianity has led to valuing human life, abolishing slavery, elevating the status of women as co-heirs uh, with uh, uh, men. Uh, uh, talking about life is made in the image of God, not to have sacrifices, human sacrifices, or not to take life uh, so easily. A third result of Jesus' coming uh, was compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. Before Christ came, the world was cold and inhospitable. But when Christ and the Bible became known, you began to see flowering and flourishing, charity, benevolence, Mercy, poverty relief, orphanages, hospitals, all of these things as a direct result of Christianity. Think, for example, of uh, Greek society. Um, 
And 2 Corinthians, good speaking to good Bible students, Paul was weak and he was afflicted with a thorn in his flesh. And what resulted uh, in the Greeks' perception of him as a result of that? They despised him. And they esteemed the super-apostles who had rhetorical eloquence. And they esteemed physical might and physical beauty. And Paul didn't match up to those characteristics. And that's what society was like before Christianity came. If you were weak, if you were sick, if you were deformed, if you were defective, uh, with a birth defect, you were just thrown out. They just took children and threw them on piles. And it was the Christians who came along and gave those people homes or took care of those people and extended mercy and benevolence and relief and established orphanages and hospitals. You know, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, we're very uh, quick to say when you start a church, you start a school. But you can look at the history of Christianity and almost say that where you start a church, you start an orphanage. It was that common. George Whitfield did this in his preaching ministry in uh, the South and in New England and in Great Britain. Over and over again, uh, you saw this. Santa Claus uh, came from St. Nicholas, uh, some of us might know. And gift-giving at Christmas is a result of God's gift of His Son. All charity, you see, points back to Christ. Charity is originally the King James word for love. And it was the love of God that caused Him to send His Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. All charity points back to Christ. In the ancient world, it was astounding that Christians loved one another because the world was a cruel place where you looked out for yourself. And brothers and sisters, this provides a unique opportunity for us, and I mentioned it to you before, and I remind you of it again today, is that as we see Christianity wane in influence in our society, you see more and more of a focus on self. People look out for number one. You deserve a break today. Uh, you know, just uh, 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 you only go around once. Go for all the gusto you can. Self magazine. I mean, it's all around us. Uh, self. But Christianity is not like that. But where you see that happening, we have a unique opportunity to love one another. And not just live for self. Not just look out for number one. Not just be self-concerned, self-interested. When we genuinely love one another, that presents a shocking portrayal to a watching world. Fourthly, education. Christianity transformed education. Education for the masses, not just the elites, has its roots in Christianity. Why? Because we were known as a people of the book. We were known as a people of the book. And that Christ was the Lord of every area of life. So that every area of life needed to be taught in the light of the Word of God. And every thought needed to be taken captive to make it obedient to Christ. Many of the world's languages were first set to writing by Christian missionaries. So that they could read Scripture. It was the same, if you're uh, uh, familiar with any educational history at all, you'll know McGuffey's readers were originally Christian. People were taught the alphabet with the Bible. A was, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. 
That was McGuffey's reader. That's how people learned how to, their alphabet and they learned how to read. And why was it important for people to learn how to read? So that they could read the Bible and that they could know the message of salvation and that they could know Jesus Christ whom to know is eternal life. That's why there was such a premium placed on education by Christians. Unfortunately, many Christians don't share uh, that perspective uh, down uh, in our day. Public education in the United States owes its roots to Christianity. This was a mistake, but uh, but in 1647, the Puritans um, passed the old Deluder Satan Act, which established public schools, and it mandated towns to hire and pay teachers. It was named the old Deluder Satan Act, because the devil gets a foothold into people's lives because of the ignorance of Scripture. You remember how Hosea, we went through the Minor Prophet, says, My people perish for lack of knowledge. My people perish for lack of knowledge. And the Puritans said, If people don't know the Scriptures, if they can't read, if they're not educated, then Satan's going to get a foothold in their lives, and they'll be lost, and the whole society will be affected. So they passed the old Deluder Satan Act to establish public schools and mandate towns to hire and pay teachers. <clears throat> Almost every one of the first 123 colleges and universities in the United States were Christian. And if you weren't a, a, a member of a church, you couldn't be the president of a university or a college. Because you had to be a Christian. It was a Christian institution. The Ivy League schools, Yale, Harvard, and these schools, they were, they were formed to produce preachers. <laughs> if you don't know anything about this, this is shocking news to you because you go there today and they're just bastions, not of liberalism, but just outright relativism. They're flakes. I mean, they're really flakes, these people. I don't know why they continue to have the prestigious reputation that they have. Education of women, education of um, um, all ethnic uh, classes was something which is directly attributable to Christianity. Fifthly, civil liberties and governments. Uh, civil liberties and government. The whole concept of freedom you need to know is something directly attributable to the Bible. Freedom, for example, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia has a quote on it, let proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's from Leviticus 25. All right, They quoted that because freedom was valued as Christians. You could even talk about the American Revolution as the direct consequence of Calvin's teaching in Geneva. There's a direct line that can be drawn from Calvin in Geneva and his teaching right through the Reformation down to the establishment of the United States of America. <clears throat> uh, separation of church and state. Um, uh, the three branches of government, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive, are right out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, we looked at tax-exempt uh, status a few weeks ago in Sunday school. comes right out of the Bible. All these things come right out of the Bible. Our jurisprudence is derived from Blackstone, William Blackstone in England, most of which was derived from the Bible. And the whole concept of freedom, we've lost that in our day. And this I'll explain in a few minutes, but this is why this is such an important subject as we celebrate Christmas. 
then we understand that freedom is something which was promoted by Christianity. Is that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that freedom was always freedom to obey God. It was freedom from bondage and slavery to sin. It was freedom from bondage and slavery to the to tyrants. It was freedom to obey God. When our founders came here, they came for freedom uh, of religion. And today that's been turned into freedom from religion. Freedom from religion, a complete distortion, a 180 degree reversal of what happened in the founding of our country. And the whole concept of freedom has been turned topsy-turvy as well. Freedom now is the freedom to do anything you want. So anybody, and particularly any religion, can do anything they want because they have this freedom, you see. Well, that's just the perversion of the biblical notion of freedom. All Look around the world, all free nations are nations that have been influenced by Christianity. Sixthly, science. This is a big one. I was just listening to, I can't remember if it was National Public Radio where you'd expect it, or someplace where you wouldn't expect it. But they were talking about how science and Christianity are just completely incompatible. Uh, if you believe the Bible... And if, if you believe what the message of the Bible, then there's no way you could take the scientific method seriously or be engaged in scientific enterprise. But Christianity is not the enemy of science. If Christ had never been born, science would likely not have come into being. Let me say that again. I want you to get this in your brain. If Christ had never been born, science likely would not have come into being. Listen to uh, this, for example. Science could never have come into being among uh, pagans who were animists. That is, they believed that spirits inhabited all things. There were spirits or gods in the trees. There were spirits and gods in the clouds and in the grass and one thing or the other. So you had animists and you had pantheists that believed God was in everything or everything was God. Science could never have come into being among the animists of Central or Southern Africa or many other places in the world because they would never have begun to experiment on the natural world since everything, whether stones or trees or animals or anything else within it, contained living spirits, spirits of various gods or ancestors. It's only the concept that God is separate and distinct from His creation that allowed scientific enterprise to move forward. Immanuel Kant, with his distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal, uh, was praised by philosophers and scientists. Said he he uh, he saved he saved science and made room for religion. As God was pushed out of the experiential realm, he saved science and made room for religion. The truth is the exact opposite. You see, is that Christianity. Uh, saved religion and made room for science. If, if it hadn't, if Christ had never been born, um, science would likely not have come into being. Let me just read to you some uh, scientists. Roger Bacon. You ever hear of Roger Bacon, 13th century? Um, William of Ockham. Uh, Copernicus. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Johann Kepler. Galileo, Blaise Pascal, 
Isaac Newton, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, Joseph Priestley, trying to, there are Louis Pasteur, uh, William Kelvin, uh, George Washington Carver, Joseph Lister. All of these people were Christian advocates of scientific knowledge. But to listen to people today, you would think that Christianity is the enemy of science. Seventhly, free enterprise and a work ethic. This is mainly what we've been studying in our uh, Wall Street Bible study on Tuesdays. Productivity and prosperity in economics and in nations is a direct result of Christianity. A direct result of Christianity. I could go on. Let me just conclude with a few extra points here on the results of Jesus coming. Sexuality and marriage. Sexuality and marriage was elevated and given great value uh, by Christianity. Immorality was repressed and suppressed because of Christianity. Medicine and healing the sick. It was the love and the example of Jesus Christ and His healing ministry that inspired a new attitude towards helping the ill. Morality in general. Christianity overcame cannibalism, uh, constant warfare, plunder, uh, which existed before Christ coming into the world. Uh, arts and music were inspired by Christianity. Many of the greatest masterpieces in the world have had Christian themes uh, or Christian basis, not the least of which is one we're familiar with at this time of year, and that's Handel's Messiah. D. James Kennedy uh, states it this way, the results of... Jesus coming. Somewhat of a summary statement. He says, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. <coughs> Excuse me. While he was dying... His executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Now, that's the results of Jesus coming. What should be the responses to Jesus coming? Well, Christians should be the first ones to stand up and yell, Stop thief. Christians should be the first ones to stand up and yell, Stop thief. We are being robbed of all of this in our day. Christians are being robbed of this. Our society is being robbed of this by historical revisionists who are saying there are very few people who would deny that Jesus was a historical figure, but denying the impact that he had on the entirety of world history. 
And we ought to be the first ones to stand up and say, stop thief. Uh, you can't do that. Uh, rather than suppress themes such as Merry Christmas, rather than do away with nativity scenes, rather than question whether or not we ought to have Christian greetings at Christmas time, we ought to stand up and say this is the one holiday that everybody in the world ought to be celebrating to the despot of every other holiday on the calendar. Because the world has been uh, transformed by the coming of Jesus Christ uh, and has been improved so greatly. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we need to get beyond, you see. And you've heard me say this before, so... Uh, I'm merely repeating it. We need to get beyond this pietistic notion of a privatized Christianity. We need to get beyond this pietistic notion of a privatized Christianity. I'm not opposing piety. I'm opposing pietism. All right? Pietism is that it's me and Jesus. It's my spiritual life, my devotional life, and that's all that matters. Go in my prayer closet, I pray. I meet with my family, we have devotions. I go to church on Sunday. I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven when I die. Thank the Lord, praise the Lord, but that's it. That's pietism, right? We need to get beyond the pietistic notion of a privatized Christianity. That Christianity is simply and solely about my soul going to heaven. My body, too, in the light of 1 Corinthians 15, and is about me going to heaven when I die, and that the Bible is only a container for a message of how to get to heaven. If, as I hope I've at least briefly, uh, skimming the surface, demonstrated that Christianity has transformed everything in creation then we need to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of every area of life and that every area of life needs to be brought under His Lordship. That everything in life needs to be brought under His Lordship. That as Paul says, every thought needs to be made captive to make it obedient to Christ. And what does that mean? It means that amongst us generally as adults and Christians, there can be no intellectual laziness. No intellectual laziness. We ought to be reading books like Under the Influence and What If Jesus Had Never Been Born. And we ought to be reading Calvin Stone lectures on Calvinism to see how Christianity affects all of life. So that, one, we're personally enabled and equipped to take captive every thought to make it obedient uh, to Christ. Two, that we can demonstrate to a world that hates Christ and hates God how they're wrong... And how if Christianity, if Christ had never been born, they'd probably be dead. They'd be living in a cave somewhere. That it's a direct result of Christianity that we have Western civilization. And thirdly, we need to do that for our children. Because they're the ones that are going to grow up uh, in future generations where the host- and I firmly believe it's going to get worse before it gets better, where the hostility is only going to get worse. You can see it coming. All you've got to do is listen to the radio, watch the TV, don't watch the TV, uh, or read the newspaper. 
All right? And you can see the hostility to Christianity increases almost every day. Almost every day you can sense it. And it's the children that are going to have it worst. I remember years and years ago, I think it was when Shannon was our only child, Julie and I sat Julie and I sat in our living room and we turned on TV, forgive us, we turned on TV late at night, we were turning the channels and there was a comedian, a female comedian on. So you're talking about uh, 15 years ago maybe, uh, Shannon was our only child, 15 years ago, sitting there and, you know, a long day, you're tired, you want some laughs, listen to this comedian. Turned out she was a lesbian and she was telling jokes about homosexuality, one thing or another. And Julie and I just looked at each other and wept, and wept, and said, this is the world that our children are going to be raised in, where this is entertainment. This is entertainment. So we need to do this for our children, that they don't get um, snowplowed by this revisionist history, that they are able to see all of life in the light of Scripture, through the spectacles of Scripture, that they are equipped and enabled to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, that they are putting into practice the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So that's the first thing. Secondly, and that's that's why I chose this passage. Let me return to firstly. That's why I chose this passage in Matthew chapter 5. All right. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What Jesus says is, you are two things, and then you're to act one thing. You're to do one thing. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. You're to do something. You're to let your light shine so that people see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That is, you're to take what you are and to translate it into what you do. You're to take what you are and translate it into what you do so that people can see that. And as we see the results of Jesus coming, we're to do that. We're to take what we are. We're to be salt and light. We're to be out there acting in this way, equipped with the Word of God, equipped with the Spirit of God, equipped with the salvation of God, and all this knowledge in order to be salt and light in the world. Secondly, though, secondly, we ought to be a thankful people. If you saw It's a Wonderful Life, you know that when Jimmy Stewart uh, is restored and uh, finds out what his life would have, been, would have been like if he had never been born, and then he's brought back to real life, He's just overflowing with gratitude. And certainly because of the salvation uh, that we have uh, from our sins, the new life that we have in Christ, we ought to be thankful. But we ought to be thankful also for this enormous legacy, this enormous, these enormous benefits which accrue to us because of Jesus coming. Everything that I spoke about in the first point. Look at 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. And then verse 15 of chapter 9, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Certainly we thank God for the salvation we enjoy, but we need to be thankful for the enormous heritage and legacy that's been handed down to us. We are the stewards of civilization. We are the stewards of civilization. Because civilization is a direct consequence of Christianity. And thirdly, uh, Colossians chapter 3, and we conclude here. Colossians chapter 3. We're to be salt and light. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do it with all your might. Do it because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it because you want to glorify and enjoy Him now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that You would... um, Grant us your blessing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.